The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. I was really wondering what to preach this week. And uh, want me to move up a little bit? And uh, I was telling Ben last night, I had like two messages prepared and I was going to do another passage and I just said, man, well, I feel like we need to deal with the elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is instability. Everybody's just dealing with instability. And I said, I don't, don't think this message from the Sermon on the Mount will work. And Ben just said, well, maybe the most stable thing that you could do for the congregation would actually just be to continue preaching the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Gee, why didn't I think of that? But <laughs> so that gave me some resolve to continue with our Sermon on the Mount uh, series. Thank you, Ben. And uh, I wonder how many of you, though, can say last week was like, if I said, how are you doing this morning? And we just always want to say good. But in reality, last week was not a good week. Can we be honest about that for most of us? I mean, it was a bad week, bad financially. Um, I mean, I just feel better when the stock market is trending up, you know, and I see the arrow trajectory going up, and I, I just feel a little better about life. But when, the, but when it's like a streamlined brick coming out of the sky going down, that does not make me feel good. How about you? And not only did our retirement portfolios take a big hit, but for many of us, our current work, our employment, everything's just shaken. And many of us are either out of work or hours were cut back. And now we're home and it's just this weird feeling where it feels like our economy is in quicksand and everything is on pause. And um, that's just, you say, well, at least I can just, you know, watch March Madness and I can enjoy, you know, seeing Zion Williamson play against all these people for the first time in the NBA. Oh, Gee, there's not even car racing. There's nothing sports-wise except for stuff that took place a few years ago, so you can't do that. And um, so everything is just kind of in chaos, and it feels like we're this ship that's like 20 to 30-foot swells, but even worse are these arrows coming at us that are feels like kamikaze pilots are coming and, and trying to take us out. And so just a weird time of a myriad of frustrations. And that leads to lots of other sins, because then we start to get frustrated. We start to have a lot of fear, worry, anxiety, uh, lust, coveting, disappointment, boredom, routines rocked. Um, And so moms are supposed to have it all together. And there's an enormous uptick in stress, conflict internally, externally, and it's like the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Anybody read that book? And uh, it's, you have to adapt, and there's four characters, you know, Sniff, Scurry, Hem, and Hall. And, uh, you know, so they're, they're trying to figure out, who moved my cheese? Well, our cheese got moved this week in a big way. So what do we need, where are we, and what is the bigger story? So we're going to drill down into anger, into our hearts, and look at anger and contempt and saying mean-spirited things. But before we do that, 
and kind of do this, if you think of like fixing your car of a realignment, the recalibration and balancing of the tires. If the frame is bent to your car, what good is all that going to do that you've fixed all those other things if your frame is bent? So much of our anger lies actually in the frame. And we got to start here and fix the worldview frame first. So where are we in the big picture? Let's kind of put the, you know, we're the ship at sea, but where are we? Well, we're east of Eden, and we're, we're not to new heavens and new earth yet. But Jesus has come in, and he's bringing in the kingdom. And we're in that already, not yet tension. We're in the middle of Romans 8. We're in the middle of 2 Corinthians 6. We're in the middle of Revelation, and we're in the middle of Luke 21. I'll explain in a second. We're right in the middle of all that. So what does that mean? Well, Romans 8 tells us, we're right in the middle of it, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us, or to us. The creation is groaning, and we are groaning. Because we're waiting to be set free from our bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, the redemption of our bodies. And so we're inwardly groaning as we're eagerly awaiting. So some of our frustration is we're like the patient, impatient kids who say to, to our father on a trip, are we there yet? And our heavenly father is saying, no, you're not there yet. You're on your way. Be patient. We're inwardly groaning. We're in the middle of 2 Corinthians 6. Remember where Paul said, we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We're poor yet we're making many rich. We have nothing yet we possess everything. The world isn't right side up just yet. And our world isn't either. But we're on our way. We're in the middle of that. We're in the middle of Revelation. We haven't got to Revelation 21 and 22 yet. We're all things are made new and there's no more mourning, there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more crying. Rather, we're around Revelation 6, verse 7, where he says, he opened the fourth seal and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a pale horse and the rider's name was Death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by a wild beast of the earth. We'll come back to pestilence in a minute, but note that God is allowing the pestilence to happen. They were given authority. And then we're in the middle of Luke 21. Jesus says, referring to the end of the age, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but, then the, then, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. So I clicked on my Loewen Nida lexicon this week for pestilence to see what that word means. What does that little word mean? And this is what it came up with. I was pretty surprised. A widespread contagious disease often associated with divine retribution. That's pestilence. Sounds eerily similar to a pandemic, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I've heard some people argue, you know, well, this is, this is a judgment on China because they're persecuting Christians. We've got to be careful making those kind of one-to-one correlations like Pat Robertson, you know, blaming, you know, the people at the, that living in the Twin Towers were more wicked or something when the thing crashed into it. 
God told us these things were going to happen. He told us that before the end comes, these various things are going to happen, and they're going to be a smelling sauce, a salt that will wake people up to reality that all of our comforts are being stripped away, and it's awakening us from our slumber. And God has said to us, don't even be surprised. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. Don't be surprised. Really? I mean, I I always feel like I'm Gomer Pyle. Surprise, surprise, because it's a surprise to me. Don't be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't do that. And yet we are surprised. And many of us, we find ourselves getting angry. And we get angry because we're out of control. There's things we can't manage or control. And Jesus says to, to us this morning, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you've heard it that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Wow. Have you ever noticed how anger is sometimes described? Tell me what all these things have in common. You ready? They say, we say things like, man, he's, he's really hot under the collar. Yeah, she was steamed. She was steaming. He was breathing fire. You know, he was volcanic. He was turning red. He was hot-blooded. Her blood was boiling. You could see her face getting hot. He blew up at me. I mean, what do all those have in common? Is it any wonder that we reply to visible anger by saying, you need to cool off. (laughs) You need to put that on ice. You need to take a chill pill. Right? Because anger is often spoken of in terms of fire and heat. And the idea is the, f- the phrase of being kindled is sometimes used in scriptures referring to a fire. And the idea is that in each of us, we have an explosion point where heat becomes fire. And some of us became fire this past week because of all the stress around us. Or we had somebody fire on us because there's a lot of stress. And that stress is everybody's ready for combustion right now. So out of anxiety and unrest and all these things often comes anger and lust. And we'll look at, and that's what Jesus is dealing with uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the first things he wants to deal with. And so some of us, you know, we we start to figure out, you know, I have the patience of gunpowder. And the circumstances of life act as a match for a sure explosion. And anger is, is an interesting thing because if you think of the seven deadly sins, you've got pride, gluttony, envy, lust, greed, sloth, and anger. Guess which deadly sin has more references to it than all the rest combined in the Bible? Anger. So no wonder Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, it's a good book, and he, he says when we trace wrongdoing back to its roots in the human heart, We find that in the overwhelming number of cases, it involves some form of anger. 
Close beside anger, you will find its twin brother, contempt. Jesus' understanding of them and their role in life becomes the basis of his strategy for establishing kingdom goodness. It is the elimination of anger and contempt that he presents as the first and fundamental step toward the rightness of the kingdom heart. Jesus starts with this renovation project in our hearts in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where he's starting. He's saying, your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and Pharisees because they're doing it on their own and they're trying to do this thing. But I've come and bring in a kingdom and, and your righteousness must be greater than that. And here begins the renovation project. And the very first plank that he's got to knock down, the big one, is anger. And so Jesus takes angry people. Isn't this good news though? And he gently makes them gentle as they experience him, and he turns men into gentlemen. He's in the business of doing that. And Jesus is essentially making two points in this passage. One, we're not to engage in personal attacks flowing from anger or contempt, but rather we are to engage first and quickly in personal reconciliation. So we're just going to look at those two points, what Jesus is saying we're not to do and what Jesus is saying we are to do. And then we're going to see in that the midst of his authority. I mean, Jesus speaks with such authority. When you read this, what other writer in Scripture speaks like this? What other person on the planet has ever spoken like this? You've heard it said, but I say to you with such authority that, he, that, that it's like, well, on whose authority? On his authority. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he says, if you love me, obey what I command. So this isn't something we say, oh yeah, I should, you know, I should, I should work on this a little bit. Yeah, I should kind of maybe give a little attention to that. Are you kidding? Like, this is first priority. And now he's dealing with this first issue that what he's about to change in us is how we speak to people, how we value people, how we treat people. How do we see ourselves? And how does Jesus treat us? And how does, we're going to see a lot of, how Jesus lived it throughout this Sermon on the Mount. So what is Jesus saying we're not to do? Well, we're not to get angry and call people names. <laughs> I remember hearing a while back about it. There was a, a mother, and she noticed, you know, as her kids were in the car seats behind her, that, you know, she'd been driving for a while, and then one day she just hit the brakes really hard, and that kid's, kid behind her said, Idiot! And she realized, wait a minute, I've been discipling my child in such a way that hard breaks. The child has no clue what the word means, but just reiterates, idiot. And she was convicted by that because what she was modeling was teaching her children. We teach more by imitation and emulation and example than by instruction. Our kids are looking to us. So what are our children learning from our example? If we're angrily and impatiently telling them, shut up and be patient, How's that going to work? Not going to get you very far, is it? Jesus is saying here actually three times, we are liable, we are liable, we are liable. If we do that, and meaning we're guilty, we're guilty, we're accountable, we're accountable, we're accountable. And accountable, ultimately the authority is saying to, to the hell of, to fire of hell. So it gets our attention. Raka, he says, you can't call anybody Raka, and that's an Aramaic word. It was calling somebody empty-headed. 
we have more sophisticated words today, you know, like loser, stupid, imbecile, idiot, moron, blockhead, knucklehead. And when we do that, James chapter 3 tells us that when we curse people, we're cursing people who are made in the image of God. So who are we really attacking when we say these things about people? We're actually attacking image bearers of God, and we're attacking God and our Creator and His precious creation. And so Raka may be more of an insult at the head, and fool, if we call somebody a fool, it was more of an insult at the heart. So A.B. Bruce put it like this, Raka expresses contempt for a man's head. It's like calling somebody, you're stupid, you're empty-headed. But moron or more expressing contempt for his heart and character, you scoundrel, you know, you're, you're up to no good. So one is more an attack at the head, the other is an attack at the heart, but they're both an attack. You see, either way, the bad and fruit, uh, poisonous fruit here is murder. But the, but the root is hatred, but the, the, the fruit uh, coming out is we're killing with words. And Jesus is equivalent, is saying to us, this is a violation of the sixth commandment. You thought as long as you didn't commit the deed and I hadn't killed anybody, all you gotta do is whisper it under your breath and you've committed the sixth commandment, you see? So what Jesus is saying is he's much more concerned about what's going on in the heart. Animosity and contempt are these time bombs. And we know that we have to take bombs very seriously because if you don't take bombs seriously, they can explode, and so you have to wisely unwire them, as uh, Michael Pasty's training to do in the military with the Navy. That's a hard job. Well, that's what Jesus is warning you. Take this seriously. We all have that job with our own hearts, and it's not just the letter of law of, of murder that Jesus is dressing, but the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is much more probing. You see, we don't have to commit the act to commit murder. We can murder in our hearts. We could wish our coworker, or our neighbor, or our in-law, or relative, or even a spouse was gone and would never come back. And you hear people say things like, oh, oh, he's dead to me. She's dead to me. Or I am so done with my boss. I am so done with that person. What are we saying? You see, we, we talk about them behind their backs talk under their breath, or secretly curse them, or even worse, openly curse them. In the heat of battle, we will often say, well, if I offended you, I'm sorry. And that's always, the, the, the big if is, is the interesting word there, isn't it? It's always derogatory. What we're basically saying is that a normal person wouldn't be offended but since you are so unbelievably easily offended and touchy, well, if I've offended you, excuse me, it's really a, really a way to put them down. And Jesus is drilling down on our words several times in the Gospel of Matthew. He sees this as a life or death issue, as an issue really of our eternal uh, reality of where we're gonna spend eternity based on our words. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12. He said, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil tre treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give, account, will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. 
expressions of contempt, resentment, and bitterness and anger are things that are coming out of the human heart. You're drilling down and all of a sudden something's coming up. And Jesus said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And some of the, the more literal translations of Matthew 15, 19 puts them all in the plural because they are. And the idea is that there's multiple things coming out. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts. It's not just one, it's multiple. And God desires truth where? In the inward parts, Psalm 51. And so we're not just to kill outwardly, we're not to hate inwardly. And hatred begins with anger, but then it starts to manifest itself, we see here in contempt and then in hurtful words. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that we're not to go to bed in our anger. And if we do so, we actually give the devil, uh, some translations say a foothold, but literally the Greek word is place. We give him a place. It's like, hey, you can crash at my place tonight. You got nowhere to go? Come on, you can crash here. And let me tell you, crash he will. He'll come crash at your place. That's what happens when we go to bed and we're stewing and we're angry. We're letting Satan crash at our place. Dick Caius has an analogy of a boxing match. And he says, you now come to your corner between rounds. And uh, he says during the breather, when both retire to different rooms, that Satan comes along to nurse your damaged pride. He's like the trainer of a boxer. The moment the bell rings to end the round, Satan rushes in to offer sympathy and to repair any injuries and to help the fighter figure out how to do more damage in the next round. And then he says self-pity raises its head along with resentment and conscious and unconscious revenge. And so I want to ask you this morning, Who's your trainer? Who's your trainer? Because Jesus said, if you love me, obey what I command. He's to be your trainer. But if you're listening to another voice and the devil's your trainer, that's scary. Because what's going on here is some ugly, ugly stuff that makes us, I mean, the Bible talks about these things were set on fire by hell. James 3 about the tongue and you know, and then we're, we're playing along with that. And so um, we've got to be careful. Of that. I was listening to a Tim Keller, the sermon this week, and he was talking about, you know, have you ever felt like, you know, you've blown, you've blown it, you've gotten angry, you've blown your top, and you just feel like a fool? He says, do you ever wonder why, why you feel that way? Why you feel like such a fool? He says, the answer is because you were a fool. <laughs> And Solomon just says, anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Anger lodges in the bosom of fools. The devil majors in bitterness, anger, resentment, and regret. And if the devil can get you to climb that tree, you ain't coming down for a while. That cat's staying up there. And you got to go up and get help to get that cat down out of the tree. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It's his glory to overlook an offense. Have you overlooked any offenses recently? All right, what's Jesus saying we should do? So that's all the negative. That's all what we're not to do. Say, okay, I'm not saying anything bad about anybody. Jesus gives four imperatives in one verse. In, in verse 24, leave your gift before the altar. Go first, that's an adverb, 
be reconciled, another imperative, and then come and offer your gift. I mean, there are four imperatives, and the idea is that quick, get on it fast. Leave your gift and go get right with your brother or sister. And so the idea is come to terms quickly. Well, that word is actually just the idea of like um, to be well disposed towards this person or well inclined to make friends or to come quickly to an agreement. It's to look at things from their point of view and to consider how to solve the matter quickly, as best as you can, as far as it depends upon you, what? Live at peace with all men. And we are to seek peace and pursue it, not to wait on it. Well, it ain't my problem. I didn't do it. Who's the person that sinned in the text? It says it doesn't really, it just says, uh, come to terms quickly with the person, it says, you remember that your brother has something against you. You may not even messed up, but you go out like, hey, I hear you're upset by something that I did or, or said. We need to get that right. What did I do to hurt you? Get it right. We do a lot of talking about testing right now. That's the big thing, right? I mean, we are upset because America, we are used to being number one, and we are not number one with getting the test into the hands of everybody, and there's a lot of frustration with the coronavirus and the constant cry is we need more testing. Well, how about spiritually? We need testing. And test yourself this morning. Are you infected with a slow brewing bitterness? How would you know? Well, Donald Whitney has this great little book, The Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. It's a little gem of a book. Here are two of the test yourself questions. Am I more loving? Are you more loving? And are you a quicker forgiver? How are you doing with those two questions? The Christian life is all about love, loving God, loving our neighbor, growing in our Christian walk. You know, we say it's the banner and the badge of the Christian is love. And it was said about the early church, look how they love one another. And Jesus says, that's how they'll know you're my disciples, if you love one another. So, and if we have some bitterness, some back burner bitterness that's brewing, that's not love. Peter says, above all, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. The implication is that love goes deeper, it goes wider. And some of you, I'm sure, may have grown up singing the song, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide, talking about God's love. Well, the greater our love, the more our sins are gonna cover deep and wide. So we're gonna, we're gonna go deep and wide with what we're gonna cover. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. We need to ask ourselves, has my love covered anybody's sins lately? And the reason this is important is because for myriad of reasons, I mean, this is the beginning of Jesus' bringing in his kingdom of his renovation project, but it's the devil's way to get you to stop growing as a Christian. And this is where a lot of Christians just check out and they stop growing. Because in their spiritual warfare, they stopped here. And they let bitterness get a little foothold. And they let the devil, come on and hang out at my place. I've got a little place for you. And if you're stagnant or declining spiritually right now in your walk, ask yourself, is there somebody that I'm not loving in an earthly relationship that I really don't like, or I haven't forgiven, or I'm angry at, or I'm bitter, or I hate. 
And if so, it's going to be, how are you going to grow? I mean, the Bible makes all these connections about the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship. If I've I've cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not listen to my prayer. Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the the wife and and your, your heirs together, the gracious gift of life. And the reason you're to do this is so your prayers won't be hindered. And the writer of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So the, the, if you can't love what you don't see, if you don't love what you do see, and that's kind of the, one of the points that John makes in 1 John, is that you have to love what you do see and it proves that you love what you don't see. So if you say you love God, it's kind of like the two brothers that were, they were singing great is thy faithfulness in church. And they're singing heartily with their voices. And meanwhile, they're elbowing each other in the, in the ribs. Mm! And, the other, mm! and everybody around them knew what was really coming from the heart. What was coming from the heart was not great as thy faithfulness. The worship was going on. But the real coming from the heart was the elbowing to the ribs back and forth. There are a lot of Christians like that. They're all great as thy faithfulness. Mm, mm. And they're elbowing their, their somebody. Well, what, God knows what's coming from the heart. You see, and so what God requires here, as one commentator put it, is not abstention from vice, but practice of virtue. Jesus is getting at the absolute urgency of being reconciled today. He doesn't just stop with the negative. He doesn't just say what you're not to do. He says what we are to do. And we're not just to do the negative, we're to do the positive. One of the things that I've appreciated at our church over the years is when you work um, as, a, as an elder board, there are times where we, and I got an elder here, we can verify this, that, you know, there's times where we have to talk very candidly and we have to work through issues and sometimes feelings get hurt. Sometimes we, we disagree and sometimes we passionately disagree. But what I've so much appreciated over the years with the guys is different guys at different times have said, guys, please forgive me. I I was out of a line. And they instantly get right with their brothers. And it's like the Spirit of God falls on the room when that happens because one brother recognizes, you know what? I, I I was holding my view so tightly that I started to get ugly in the conversation and said things I shouldn't. And then when forgiveness comes down, it's like, you know what? Love, love wins the day. These are real issues um, and important. And continue to pray for the leaders in the church, for all of us, that we would love one another deeply. Um, now let's think about Jesus here for a minute. As we think about this text, how does this apply to Jesus? I mean, think about when Jesus says here, uh, three times that were liable, liable, liable. And you knew who actually was the one who became liable? was Jesus. There's only one other place where this word occurs in Matthew. And it's when Jesus is standing before the high priest and he tells him that you're not going to see me again till you see me coming on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest is like, he's committed blasphemy. And he says, what do you think to the Sanhedrin, to the court? And they say, he is liable. He deserves death. And that was the, that was the, 
beginning of the end for Jesus, Matthew 26, 66. And yet Jesus came to deliver us from this curse. He took it for us. This very judgment of us being liable to Gehenna, to the fire of hell, Jesus took that blow for us. He was liable. And it says in Hebrews 2.15 and 14 that he, he became like us in every way, yet without sin, and he came to deliver all who through fear of death were liable or subject. They were guilty to lifelong slavery. And Jesus came to undo that curse. He became liable. He took it for us. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become liable to all of it. All you gotta do is fail one time. You say, oh, I'm gonna be good from here on out. I've only blown it a few times. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become liable for all of it. Jesus is the only one who never broke it in any way, and he became liable to all of it for us. He became sin on a cross, and that's how he worked reconciliation as Jesus showed us what loving his father looked like. He showed us what surrender looked like. He sur- it was in a surrendered relationship to always do the father's will. And vertically speaking, he's in perfect relationship with his father his whole life. But then how did Jesus love his neighbor? How did Jesus do horizontally? And how did he do towards his enemies? Well, what did we read this morning? in our responsive reading. That when we were godless, when we were sinners, when we were powerless, and when we were enemies, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were enemies, he died for us. We were enemies. You say, well, I didn't know we were estranged. You know, that's what Henry David Thoreau said you know, when he's on his deathbed. Uh, some of the chaplain came or whatever and asked him, are you ready to, to uh, make peace with God? And he said, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know we, we had a problem. You know, I didn't know we were alien. And the Bible is very clear. No, no, we have a problem. Our sins have offended him. And as a result, he doesn't hear us because there's this breach called sin. Well, Jesus became sin on a cross to bridge that gap, to reconcile us to God. And so... Jesus has done what is necessary for us. And so now his spirit, when we receive his grace, we give him our sins, he comes, he begins to change us from the inside out as we follow him and how do we love our neighbors. Well, let me give you just some real practical tips on how to fight. These are seven things, okay? So practically speaking, what does this look like for us? Number one, put a muzzle on your tongue. Let's just start with the negative. That's Psalm 39. And we're actually, we're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So how do we do that? Well, Psalm 39 just says, I will guard my mouth that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. So there is this starting point of, I got to put a muzzle on my tongue. Remind ourselves of what Jesus says about anger, insults, and name calling. Number two, remember who you are. We need this eternal perspective and we need to be humbled. And the next verse of Psalm 39 says this. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. There's the fire. Verse four, O Lord, make me know my end 
And what is the measure of my days? And let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely they're for nothing, they're in turmoil. So the, what's helping the psalmist is getting an eternal perspective is that our life is so unbelievably short. So in light of eternity, am I really going to spend it being mad at somebody when I'm going to be standing before God just like that? My life is a shadow. Is this really how I want to spend my time? Number three, ponder and be silent. This is Psalm 4. Psalm 4 is where we get the quote in Ephesians 6 about be angry and sin not. We're, we're, there is times where we're to be angry. If you never get angry about anything, it means you don't love anything. You get angry about something because you love things. And if, and if people are doing sinful things all around you, anger is actually what gives you the energy to respond. So take the stimulus, the adrenaline of anger, but use it for good and control it and be slow to anger. God is slow to anger. We're to be slow to anger, but anger does have its appropriate place. So we're to be angry, but sin not. Be angry and do not sin, Psalm 4, pondering your hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That's a good, Psalm 4 and Psalm 39 are good psalms to reflect on if you're angry. Number four, leave room for God's wrath. This is important because if we didn't believe that God will actually bring down justice and he will right all wrongs, then we would think we've got to go around righting all wrongs and that we've got to go be Rambo and we're going to you know, go fix everything and make it right. You know? And I'm going to go be Claude Van Damme and you know, I'm going to go make it right. You know? Well, we're to repay no one evil for evil, give no th- but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Number five, be committed to overcoming evil with good. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can start with praying for them. And then praying strategically about how you can bless them. Even people that you have a really hard time with. Begin to bless them and overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Jesus did? He was not overcome with evil, but he overcame evil with good, the greatest good ever. Number six, preach the gospel to yourself. What did Jesus do for us when we were enemies? We were powerless, godless, sinful enemies, and we've been reconciled to the king of the universe. And lastly, number seven, to obey is better than to sacrifice. I want to quote with, end, end the message with a quote here from Laura Story. She's a Christian contemporary artist, and she's written a book called When God Doesn't Fix It. And she's dealing with some pretty heavy stuff in the book. Husband had a brain tumor, uh, lives with, he constantly forgets. So like every day, literally, there's very few things that he remembers. And she's lived with that since a few years into her marriage. And so her songs are powerful. And she says, we often think about worship as the songs we sing in church, but the truth is that worshiping God is about surrender. 
Surrendering to God's will when it doesn't match ours or when we're too impatient to wait for him. Surrendering that which is most important to us and surrendering our personal story to live on our part in God's greater story. Worship is surrendering everything to God, valuing God so much that we're willing to let everything else go. So let this go and go get right and surrender because to obey is better than sacrifice. Let me pray for us. Father, these things are easy in theory, unbelievably difficult in practice. And Lord, we will have to put these things into practice because we're constantly engaged in conflict. Lord, forgive us for our fight or flight mentality. So much of our difficulties in life are not dealing well with conflict. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for these words. And we ask now, Lord, that you would give us the grace to receive them, to put them into practice, to humble ourselves. And we pray that, Lord, as far as it depends on us, that we would pursue peace with all men. Thank you that you pursued it with us. And thank you for the reconciliation that we have received from Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.